Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. But there are still a lot of people who, unfortunately, the trust is not there. And so I think it's down on us as healthcare professionals and members of the scientific community. It's down to the government. It's down to those of us who know about the vaccines and know about the benefits of the vaccines to go out there and educate people and gain people's trust. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. This is a special bonus episode of The Doctor's Kitchen brought to you in partnership with the Mayor of London. And we're going to be specifically talking about COVID-19 vaccines that are currently available in the UK. COVID is still a serious disease. And at the time of the recording today, tens of thousands of cases are still occurring daily, which can lead to deaths and potentially long-lasting effects such as long COVID, a topic we have talked about at length on the podcast with immunologists and researchers, getting the vaccine is the best way to protect yourself, your family and friends from COVID-19 and reduce the chances of new variants that can emerge from uncontrolled spiraling cases. And this is key. It's truly a global issue which requires a global response. And without a worldwide vaccine strategy, we risk further restrictions, uncontrolled spread and the consequences associated with that and the vaccines have gone through rigorous testing and are very safe and working as a doctor myself I was lucky enough to be one of the first to get both doses I had minimal side effects and I made sure my friends and family members got theirs as soon as it was their turn too so they got the protection that they need however despite the many campaigns to educate the public appropriately Hesitancy to have the jab exists, particularly amongst ethnic minorities and the 18 to 24-year-old group. And to talk about this topic in greater depth and take an empathic approach to this problem, I've got Dr. Sarah Filson on the podcast with me today. She is an infectious disease microbiology registrar working at West Middlesex University Hospital. She previously worked at Northwick Park during the first and second waves that we talk about earlier today and um, admitted a huge number of COVID-19 patients from the diverse areas of Brent and Harrow. And as part of her role in hospital, she also worked on the COVID-19 related clinical trials, including the recovery trial and the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine trial. And her experience across London hospitals has really given her greater understanding of the differences and challenges of providing healthcare across this really diverse city. And prior to studying medicine, Dr. Filson worked for Thomson Reuters as a scientific editor on pharmaceutical drugs, uh, a pharmaceutical drugs database that reported on drug development of novel therapeutics. So this is a particularly useful skill to have when talking about the vaccine strategy. Uh, and I really think you're going to enjoy this episode as we talk about a number of different things, and t- including how vaccines work, the different types of vaccines there are, the benefit and risk of vaccines and how you weigh that approach, and also why vaccines save lives that don't contain alcohol, animal or non-kosher, non-halal products, and they have no impact on fertility. I cannot stress that enough, um, but 
I really hope you enjoy listening to me chat to Dr. Sarah and uh, please enjoy. So you, you were working at Northwood Park uh, for the majority of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, wow. What was that like? It was intense. Um, so um, I'm sure you know COVID. Um, um, when COVID first hit, it hit Northwood Park pretty badly. And that's a really kind of a testament to the fact that it's such a diverse um, community. But also, I guess, it's proximity to places like Heathrow. And kind of initially at the start of the pandemic, what we were doing was we were doing a lot of screening. So we were doing initially um, screening within the hospital of people who come back from Heathrow. And then we were doing community screening of people who fit the case definition. So for those of you who can remember all the way back at the very start of the pandemic, we were only screening people who had traveled to areas that we thought were a risk. And I say we thought were a risk because obviously we then found out that obviously we had lots of local community um, transmission without travel history but we started off um, screening people from China and then um, the surrounding Asian countries and then moving into kind of Europe um, when Italy got um, quite badly affected and then kind of probably we had like a couple of cases from the community initially and then all of a sudden we were just inundated with inpatients so we had patients mm. from the local community who hadn't traveled who came into hospital really unwell, really sick with COVID. Um, and our hospital essentially transformed overnight. We went from maybe a handful of patients to wards full of patients with COVID. Mm. Our ITU being um, expanded um, exponentially and patients actually having to be moved to other places because there were so many patients. So the first wave was tough. It was kind of really unexpected. We didn't really... It's not that we didn't, yeah, we didn't, we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know what would work in terms of management and treatment. And we were just trying to do our best by patients. But the, the amount of patients we saw was incredible. Yeah, yeah. I had a few colleagues working there at the time as well. And they were just talking about the conditions with patients in, in, uh, in beds in the corridors and stuff. And the A&E being overwhelmed and IT obviously being completely at the, at the brim and spilling over into other um wards as well yeah so we had a we had to convert our recovery into an itu space and then um what happened across london as a whole was that there was a kind of transfer network set up which is still in place today actually where patients would be intubated at one hospital and transferred to wherever there were beds and so it was, it was a massive logistical um operation and it, it was obviously quite stressful especially for kind of um those people working in itu and also kind of um in areas like A and E, and uh, for us um, as an infectious disease team, it was quite challenging because we were kind of um, teaching the rest of the hospital how to use PPE properly, ensuring infection control was okay, trying to counsel people about what we thought was best to do and what we thought wasn't best to do, and so there was a lot that happened in the first wave um, that was stressful but one of the things that was good about it I guess was the fact that the teams and the hospitals they pulled together so well we had kind of um, trauma and orthopedic doctors doing things like transfers we had surgeons coming in we had senior consultants doing kind of more kind of um, lower level jobs just to ensure that there were enough bodies like you know there were pronin teams there were multiple different people who kind of just changed their role in order to see what was needed at the time which was which was amazing yeah, yeah. It was uh, an incredible time to be part of, uh, a, like, the, the hospital just felt 
ever more than previously a cohesive unit where everyone mucked yeah. in. Um, and it was it it was strangely nice to be part of those teams that were just you know filling in gaps and stuff and everyone putting their hand up. Yeah, I think I think that was really good, and I hope it's something that we can um, take forward from the pandemic. Actually, more kind of cross speciality and um, um, more cross site and more collaborative working across London. That would be amazing. At the start of the pandemic, I was asked about the likelihood of a vaccine, and I was like it's going to take a long time. <laughs> I yeah. was very yeah. skeptical of a vaccine. Yeah. And so the fact that we had a vaccine so quickly, I was like, I was genuinely, I still am genuinely amazed. So um, why don't we talk about what, what vaccines are and, and sure. uh, the different suite of vaccines we have currently? Definitely. I mean, I think we all are amazed by what science has done and what the, the scientific and the medical community have done in this last year and a half. It's been incredible. It's been like nothing we've ever seen. Uh, so in terms of the way vaccines work, essentially, vaccines use a part of a infection, um, so an infectious agent such as a virus, a bacteria, uh, a fungus, they use a, some part of it, whether it be live, a, a bit of protein, um, a bit of an inactivated part of uh, the um, infectious agent in order to introduce your body um, to the infection in essentially a non-harmful way. So the infectious agent, um, whether it be in a subunit or a protein or um, in the case of um, the vaccines we have at the moment, the messenger RNA and the viral vector, they allow your body to come across a part of uh, the infectious agent and uh, to then use your own body's immune system to um, make an immune response. So with the specific vaccines that we have for COVID, um, what we have is we have a part of the virus called the spike protein, which is essentially, I like to say, the key um, for the virus. It allows it to enter cells. And it's it's kind of one of the reasons why they're called coronaviruses, because if you look at the virus under an electron microscope, you see the little spikes and, and, and that's where the kind of name corona comes from. And essentially these vaccines, they use a, a genetic code for the spike protein in order to introduce it to cells in the body. And then these immune cells allow the body to then recognize it as foreign and make its own antibodies so use using your own immune system in order to, to fight and to well to fight i say to to recognize um the virus as foreign and then allows you to have kind of a memory of these antibodies in case you then come across them in the, again in the future and then when you do your body's already seen it and is already prepared so it's a bit like a kind of i guess an infantry soldier who's gone ahead has got some information, gathered some information, so that then if you ever come across this adversary again, they're already ready. They're they're good to go. Mm. And we have a suite of different types of vaccines, don't we? So you mentioned a couple. There's um, uh, live attenuated, uh, live uh, mRNA, which has yeah. obviously garnered a lot of interest. Um, w which ones were you involved in and which ones are you privy to in terms of um, the ones that we have? Yeah, so for... Uh, um, from a COVID vaccine point of view, um, our site um, specifically did the Oxford, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine trial, which is a viral vector um, vaccine. But obviously um, within the UK um, already approved for use and widely available now in the community are the two messenger RNA vaccines. So that's the Moderna and the Pfizer one. And then the viral vector vaccine, the Oxford 
Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. So those are the ones that are available within the UK and all of them have been trialled um, extensively um, in both the UK and also in other countries in order to ensure that they're safe and effective. Yeah. And you, you were talking about how you were responsible for uh, examining symptoms and side effects of the vaccines as well. How, how do we go about assessing the benefit risk ratio? Because I think in terms of um, people's uh, hesitancy with regards to getting the vaccine, which we'll come to talk about in a bit more depth, one of the things is uh, potential side effects. Um, and so it's taken a bit of convincing for a lot of people to be confident that they're not going to get any side effects from what is a relatively new medicine um so so how do you go about assessing the benefits and risks and and uh, but before it's actually uh, permitted to be used uh, under mhra guidelines as an fyi before i became a doctor i used to work for a, a company called thomson reuters and i used to work on a pharmaceutical drugs database so i know a little bit about drug development um in that i used to look at studies for multiple different drugs and before any medication vaccine um anything used um um uh, for kind of um, human consumption etc um what happens is uh, the drug or vaccine in question goes through a series of trials. So obviously the initial trials are something we call preclinical trials. And these are often kind of animal studies or cell studies that are done in a lab. And then once you've done those, you can then take them into clinical trials there. And often what tends to happen with these trials is they tend to be done kind of one after another and often can take years and years, which is one of the reasons why people are like, how has this been done so quickly? How is it even possible? And what kind of happened with this development? The first thing to say is that the technology wasn't new technology. So the viral vector vaccines, um, we actually have one that's already approved. And many people may or may not be aware that actually there's an Ebola vaccine that works under the same technology as the Austria, um, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which has been approved. And this technology has been available for a while now. And so they already had kind of an insight into how these vaccines might work. They'd already done um, similar work in kind of um, MERS, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory um, Virus, which is another coronavirus, and also the first the SARS virus. So there was a lot of pre-work that's been done over decades already before these vaccines even came into clinical trials. So then in terms of clinical trials, there's a first phase that looks um, primarily at safety and um uh, it's normally like a smaller number of people. So um, we tend to say maybe tens to hundreds of people, often tens. And then you go into the second and third phases, which look at efficacy and also ongoing safety. And they tend to be bigger trials. So you go kind of tens to hundreds to thousands. So um, generally phase three trials have thousands of people in and they're often um, based in multiple sites, often in different countries around the world, in order to get as much data and as much rich information as possible in regards to kind of wh whether or not these vaccines work in different types of people with different types of conditions, etc. And so that's a great thing about these trials is that they were done at a time where actually um, it was possible to do the trials in multiple different sites and in multiple different areas of the world. And this was partially, um, unfortunately, due to the fact that the, the, the pandemic was ongoing and was rampant in, in a number of different areas. 
um, it was also to do with the fact that actually so much money and funding was put into it and there was so much extra effort and work put into it. There were a lot of people who were working on other things, but when the pandemic came along, they were like, okay, this is our number one priority. And so people pulled really long hours. They did loads of extra work in order to ensure that these trials could could go through the state stages as quickly as possible but by not cutting corners. I think that's the important thing to note. There were no corners cut. These trials went on as they should do and were regulated in the same way that any other trials would be. Um, It was just very fortunate that there was a lot of money and time and effort put into this process. One of the other things that often can delay the availability of a medicine or a vaccine or whatever um, to market um, is the manufacturing process. So one of the things that often happens when drugs or vaccines are in trials is that the manufacturing process, regulatory processes, all of those things are left until they definitely know that this vaccine, this drug is going to be approved. However, what happened in COVID, which was really good, was that they started to ramp up manufacturing processes for like the kind of um, basic elements of the, and ingredients of the vaccine. And they started to ramp up all of those things at the same time as doing the trials. So once the regulators had reviewed the data and um allowed authorization of these um, vaccines it then allowed quick production and rollout of the vaccines and that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't a pandemic so there are things that were different about the way in which these vaccines were uh, approved but they were they still went through the necessary steps and i think that's the thing i always like to reassure people of yeah yeah i think you to your point there were a few key things that led to the acceleration of the vaccine being made available globally and i think its collective will is certainly one of those capital so there's an exorbitant amount of money that was pumped into this um and uh you, you had a, a global sort of um effort as well it so it's definitely a global effort yeah 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 there's a lot of sharing of uh information across scientists and i think all those typical barriers were really brought down which is why you, you saw this sort of collective effort come up with a, a suite of different vaccines in terms of the side effects that we know about at the moment what are the, the key ones that we uh, are aware of and and um uh, and, and also specifically, there was one that was painted in the news as a really big issue. And although it is a big issue in terms of brain clots, it's exceptionally rare. And it was very hard to communicate just how rare this I mean, I was asked on live TV a whole bunch of times about this. And it was, it, it, I, I hate to talk about it because it was just so rare. And, and, and actually talking about it exacerbates people's fears about it as well. And I don't think the media really understood that. Um, so yeah, perhaps we could talk about those those side effects. So I think the important thing to say is most medications, vaccines, etc., are will have some kind of side effects. So there's nothing really that we use in terms of medicine to make people better or um, vaccine-wise in terms of prevention that isn't without side effects. We like to say that these vaccines are reactogenic, which means that... Um, the side effects that most people will experience are to do with the fact that the vaccines actually work in. And so often younger people may have more side effects than older people, actually, because the fact that their immune systems are are a bit more robust and, and active. And so the main side effects that people will talk about, and generally I like to say that these tend to last between 28 to 48 hours, sometimes a little bit longer, sometimes a little bit less. I was very fortunate I didn't have any side effects, so probably I'm not the best person to talk about them, but I can talk <laughs> about them anyway. <laughs> um, 
I always tell people about the fact that they might get some pain or swelling at, at the site of injection. That's very normal and quite common. And then alongside that, people might get symptoms um, kind of that they might um, kind of attribute to similar to kind of a, a cold or a flu. So you get like maybe a bit of fever, a bit of chills. You might feel a bit um, myalgic, so your muscles might hurt. And also you might feel a bit tired. And that generally, like I said, lasts for about 24 to 48 hours and then tends to subside. And so the majority of side effects are short um lived and not severe that's the most important thing to know and like I said there are some people if you're lucky like me who don't get any um, side effects at all um I hope that means the vaccine's worked I'm sure it has but (laughs) (laughs) I'm feeling pretty good I I mean I I went through the whole pandemic and didn't get covid and still have not had covid so I'm pretty sure I'm all good um (laughs) but I still got the vaccine um, so in terms of these kind of rarer, um, more serious side effects, and they are more serious side effects, we can't we can't um, say that they're not. But I think the thing to say is these are very rare side effects. I think, you know, now we're talking about something like four billion, do- or almost four billion doses of vaccines have been given worldwide. That's an, a huge amount of vaccines to have been given. And if there was a lot of severe and serious side effects, we would have um, brought that up in the data. So um, I mentioned earlier on the different phases of the trials. It's important to know that once anything is authorised or rolled out, there's also ongoing surveillance. So in the UK, we call it yellow carding. And um, I'm sure you've probably done quite a lot of that in your career where you have to report kind of side effects of medications that people report. And actually, anybody can do that. Anybody can say, oh, I've had this vaccine. I've had this problem. I'm going to report that. And that's absolutely allowed. And we want people to do that because we want to make sure that we don't miss any serious side effects. But in terms of the one that people have talked about the most, uh, the side effect in regards to uh, this rare um, clotting problem with the um, primarily seen so far with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. And this is where, unfortunately, uh, some people have had a, a period where they've had or a problem where they've had this condition where they have very low platelets but also an increased risk of clotting. And those two things together are quite a tricky thing to have to deal with medically and can be quite fatal in some people, unfortunately. And so that does exist, and it's not something that we 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 would say doesn't exist. But I think the important thing to know is that we, we know a bit about this syndrome now, we know what to look out for, and when you go to get your vaccine, they'll talk to you about the types of things that you need to look out for in case this very rare side effect happens. And like I said, it's very, very rare. Um, it's kind of handfuls of, pe- of people per, like, million or whatever. It's, it's a very rare side effect. Yeah, yeah. And ju- just to accentuate that point, you know, I think the media attention it's garnered is uh, is unwarranted. I mean, of course, it's a it's a COVID uh, topic and, and therefore the media is definitely going to cover it. But if we paid as much attention to side effects that we hand out to side effects of medications that we hand out as general practitioners on a daily basis, the media headlines would just be so tragic across the board. Like it's far, far worse to have, you know, simple um, uh, medications with those side of it as it is uh, to the vaccine. And I think that, you know, the, the key element here is that the vaccine is saving lives. Um, and this has been borne out by the data. And that every day there's new information about the statistics on just how many lives are being saved. 
um, by having the vaccine. So it's certainly not something that I would worry about. And I, I try to communicate that whenever I'm doing like media stuff, but it, it, it's like an uphill ba- battle sometimes. It is very tricky. And I think yeah. with any new medication, vaccine, um, there's going to be more emphasis on the things that go wrong. So even if it's like, you know, you've got 200, 300,000 people who've had this and not had a problem, and then you have one person who has a problem, that one problem is going to be amplified because of the fact that it's something new. And people are worried. People are understandably anxious about things that are new and that are, um, um, to them, um, something that they, they perhaps don't understand as well as um, they would like to. I think the other thing to say is, um, I guess the majority of vaccines that people have, they have as children, right? They have in their childhood, even though they might take like a statin every day or they might take aspirin every day, um, and there are complications that are associated with that, they don't think about those things because they're just like, oh, I'm taking this one vaccine, it's new, and I've heard about these these things that could happen to me and I'm worried and and the pandemic as a whole obviously has affected everybody's like self self um sense of control right mm-hmm. we've all had our control taken away from us and it's been a tricky time for most of us to have to adapt to and so there are going to be people who who perhaps uh, normally wouldn't even be this anxious about these types of things, more anxious because of just the state in which we're living and everything we've gone through over the last year and a half. You know, that's a really good point. I didn't actually think about how hesitancy might be a symptom of people trying to exercise some control over their life that's actually been taken away over the last 18 months. And that's a that's a really interesting sort of psychological point. Um, On that note, why don't we talk about hesitancy uh to have their vaccine i mean we talked about the media articles and you know uh why uh people would understandably be be anxious about it what are the other reasons that you think um uh as to why people are so hesitant about the vaccine in in general i've spent the majority of the pandemic as well as working on the front line talking to communities and people about covid19 about the vaccine and just trying to dispel some of the misinformation that's out there. And I mean, we all talk in public health about the fact that actually this has been an infodemic because there's been so much information available. People have been sat at home. They've been consuming so much information on social media. And a lot of it, unfortunately, has not been helpful or correct for that matter. So when we talk about hesitancy, we have to look at it in the context of the fact that there is a lot of other things historically and ongoing that may also affect people's willingness to trust the government, to trust healthcare professionals, to trust um, pharmaceutical companies as a whole. So um, I'm I'm black Ghanaian. Um, I'm British born, but I'm I'm very proudly Ghanaian. I will always go on about it. And um, <laughs> my friends always laugh because I'm always picking up um, Ghana. I love Ghanaian food. <laughs> it's so much better, right? Let's let's not talk about jollof because if we get into jollof, we'll get into the whole Ghana Nigeria thing, and that that's always a bit dodgy. Even though we all know where the best jollof comes from, don't we? I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to argue about jollof rice. Don't worry. Ghana's the best. You had it here. <laughs> friends for life. Friends for life. What can I say? <laughs> so. Um, a lot of my time has actually been spent talking to members of uh, the Black African, Black, commun- um, 
Black Caribbean community, Black British community within the UK, but also the Asian community. And unfortunately, what we've seen is we've seen that actually um, vaccine hesitancy or um, I'd say reduced vaccine confidence has been seen within these communities. Mm-hmm. So very on, early on in the pandemic, we noted that unfortunately people from ethnic minority backgrounds were disproportionately being affected by COVID. And we saw it with our own eyes in hospital and then the data backed it up and uh, we noted that there were multiple things that were put in these communities at higher risk and it was talked about a lot um, and it was advertised a lot and people people had discussions around it but then I would say perhaps many communities might feel that not that much was done to rectify that and um, I mean from my point of view, I always felt safe at work and I, I feel that my family have been safe during the pandemic, etc. But there will be people who feel like they weren't safe and that not enough was done to help them. So that's one thing to say um, in regards to where we're coming from in terms of why people might not trust. And then on top of that, during the pandemic, we also had, unfortunately, the death of George, George Floyd. And what that did was that highlighted something that many of us have obviously dealt with for years, which is structural racism. So we know that there is a problem with structural racism, both in the UK, in the US and in other Western countries. But what um, his unfortunate death um, showed to us, actually, and highlighted across the world was how much of a problem it, it really still was. And it was something that was very evident and very disturbing and hard for many of us to deal with at the time and kind of I guess probably gave a lot of us um a feeling of I'm I don't even know what the words for it are I guess it's kind of I remember having conversations with my friend at, at the time and all of us just feeling deeply and personally affected by that and um all of the protests and everything that went on around that made us feel really um exposed but also really vulnerable and may have for some people brought up um their own personal experiences and and lived experiences um as black people living in the west western world so when we talk about vaccines we're not talking about vaccines within a vacuum we're talking about them in the context of a world in which many ethnic minorities feel undervalued and feel discriminated against and feel stigmatised and feel feel like they're not heard and that they don't have control over their own lives. Um, and then you say to them, look, we've got this thing that we think will, will help to protect you. But these are the same kind of news outlets. These are the same sources. These are the same people who people associate all of this other negative stuff with. So it's very hard to disconnect the two. I'm not saying it can't be done, and it and for, for a lot of us, it has been done. A lot of us are like, actually, no, the vaccines will help to save lives, and we want people to save the vaccines. But there are still a lot of people who, unfortunately, the trust is not there. And so I think it's down on us as healthcare professionals and um, uh, members of the scientific community. It's down, on the, um, down to the government. It's down to those of us who know about the vaccines and know about the benefits of the vaccines to go out there and educate people and gain people's trust because um, people have many reasons to not believe the the information they see in front of them, um, whether it be from historical problems or from ongoing problems. And we just need to take the time. We need to take the time and 
put in the effort to make sure that people feel like they're informed and that they can make an informed decision in regards to this. And I, I, I feel quite strongly about that. And that's one of the reasons why I've done so many kind of community discussions and gone out there and talked to friends and families and even like to small groups of people or like people I've come across who have asked me questions. I'm quite happy to talk to anybody about vaccines because I think it's really important for people to just have their, their questions answered, it, even if they may feel silly to them or that it may be not something that they want to talk to other people about. I'm always happy for people to ask me questions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm really glad we're we're taking sort of this approach to talking about this sensitive topic because I think it's very easy for people to dismiss other people's concerns and just say, well, they're stupid for not taking the vaccine or, you know, it it's can't it can't be down to us to educate everyone. People need to take responsibility for themselves. This is what the data shows. Therefore, everyone should be having it and if, it, if they're not taking it it's their own fault whereas actually when you look at it through the perspective that you've eloquently put there about the systemic distrust that you might have in media outlets it's understandable to see why there is vaccine lack of vaccine confidence um and instead of you know just branding everyone um you know silly who's suddenly got sucked into a spiral about flat earthing or, or whatever it might be a conspiracy theory actually taking those concerns seriously and talking about vaccines and that's why i want to do this podcast actually because it is a bit of a sensitive topic it is um it's it's not comfortable uh talking and i even i've had friends talk to me this is probably about six months ago now when they first uh, got access to the vaccine like it is okay, right? Like, I can take it. As if they wanted, like, you know, some off-the-record uh, confirmation. I mean, I, I've, I've had uh, other healthcare professionals. I've had, I mean, I, we've done work at the trust. There, there, there are multiple people who have concerns about this vaccine, and it's just about addressing those concerns and being considerate to the fact that, that not everybody might have the same understanding of these things as, mm. as perhaps you or I do. And, and acknowledging people's, justified um worries about these types of things and acknowledging that you know there is a history of um problems in regards to racism and medicine unfortunately and and it's tricky to say that as a medic because obviously both of us who go into medicine we go into medicine to make a difference and to help people and stuff so to think that even within that hallowed space of medicine there is a problem with discrimination and racism um it's tricky it's like I don't even know yeah I mean it's it we all have our own biases right we all have our unconscious biases we have our our conscious biases we have things about us that perhaps make us not as um open or as understanding to other people but I think we all have a um, have to work on that we have to work with communities and with people in order to ensure that people feel safe and feel that they can make a good informed decision and that's that's really the bottom bottom line yeah and you, you referred to this as the infodemic uh, earlier and I, I totally agree with that because as human beings i feel like we're inherently geared towards um stories and so even if the data is telling you something very, very clearly, that one person or that one story or that one sort of meme that comes, you come across, you instantly remember that. Um, and it was, it, it's very frankly put in um, uh, Daniel Tversky's and uh, Avos, I forget their names now, uh, Dan- Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, about heuristics and, and why we are geared towards storytelling, because it's our, in our human nature. And I think that's another thing to say, actually, as 
medical professionals, as scientists, etc. We haven't always been the best at explaining things in a way mm. that an every that every person can understand. I mean. Um, I have to really check myself sometimes when I, when I speak to people because often I will say things and I'll be like, oh, actually, you might not even really... And I don't mean to be kind of um, condescending and I don't mean to use big words and stuff, but sometimes you just slip into that medical ease and you're like, oh, gosh, no, I didn't mean that. What I meant was X. And we've all had to really work on that over the last year to ensure that we can reach people and ensure that people feel like they can relate to us and that they can talk to us about things that kind of um matters to them yeah yeah yeah. i i think uh, not to go off on a tangent here but i think it also speaks to why we really need to start teaching logic at schools as well and actually get people um get people to understand the concept of like confirmation bias and you know simple statistics and you know things like that because if you don't teach that well at school then it kind of spills out and when you've got social media telling you stories all the time it's very hard to check yourself and that comes you know from someone who has to constantly check themselves as well it's not just a a smart and less smart problem it's it's actually across the board exactly that i was i was literally talking to somebody else about this the other day because i feel like things like critical appraisal and critical reasoning needs to be taught and but also like i was talking to somebody i was like you know even in history you were taught about like primary and secondary sources everybody remembers that right i mean well at least i remember that i really enjoyed history i'm a bit of a geek okay but i was like like people really need to think about where they are getting their information from, what the source of this information is and how valid is it? How, how trustworthy is it? And I know it's tricky in a kind of um, social media age where you get so much information from so many different sources, but it's really important. And I get that some people will be like, well, I can't trust the government websites either, but I think you just need to really balance and really think about what it is that you're reading and the information that you're consuming and think, actually, is this WhatsApp that I've received that's been forwarded multiple times actually more correct than this, um, I don't know, Lancet paper on <laughs> vaccine efficacy? I don't think it is, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. I, I always tell people, like, it's okay to be a skeptic, but just don't be a cynic. And yeah. there's, a, there's a clear difference between a skeptic is someone who wants to check their sources, ratify it across other different sources. So you come to a common truth. A cynic is someone who probably already has a belief and they want that to be confirmed by other sources of information. And then you just look a certain way uh, or you're just cynical about the government in general, which, you know, it's, it's hard to change those sort of opinions. If I'm honest, I've tried. I'm not trying anymore. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to- talking specifically, I guess, about um, 18 to 24 year olds in particular, obviously, you know, the vaccine is, is now being offered to uh, all adults. And um, we're seeing a bit of hesitancy uh, amongst those groups as well. Do, do you think it's uh, do, do you think it's lack of confidence in the vaccine or do you think it's apathy? I think it's multiple things. Again, it, it, it it's multiple things. I mean, I know people talk a lot about like um, the fact that there've been there's been kind of lack of confidence or perhaps uh, lack of uptake um, amongst that age group. Having said that, I think initially, actually, when slots were were released, there was a massive rush and it was almost like a Glastonbury type people trying to like get online to get their vaccine. I mean, that was the initial kind of rush, I guess, pre kind of 
the end of lockdown, people were like, let me just get this sorted. I think there are multiple reasons why somebody of that age might not think they need the vaccine. So the thing I always say to, the, to people is there are multiple reasons you should get the vaccine. The first one is for your own personal protection and your own health. And I think that's really important because I think people of that age often think, you know, I'm young, I'm not going to get a severe COVID. Why should I, I take a vaccine that might have a risk of some side effects? And I think the thing to say to that is actually, um, even though you are young, there still is a risk of severe COVID, especially if you have other medical problems. Um, we know things like, for example, diabetes, being overweight. There are multiple other things that can put you at higher risk. But even if you think you're young, fit and healthy, um, you still should get the vaccine because um, one of the other things you can obviously get with COVID is long COVID. And we talked a little bit about long COVID before we came on air when you were saying that you've done a specific program about it. I think it's really important because I think one of the things that we've seen, and it's definitely something that is very um topical and very that we're all very aware of is actually more and more people are unfortunately suffering with a long covid even people who've had quite mild disease and the good thing about the vaccine is it 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 reduces your risk of getting covid and when you do get it you're likely to not have severe um or even moderate disease you're likely to be relatively well with it you might even be asymptomatic um it also reduces your risk of passing on the virus and so one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to reduce the amount of virus within the community as a whole because the less virus we have within the community the less risk there is to people who are vulnerable the less risk there is of the virus mutating which is a real problem and a real important reason for for as many people as possible to get vaccinated um so uh, there's that as well and then obviously you know it's it's one of those things where, the, um, like I said, um, we talk about, um, well, herd immunity, or as I like to call it, community immunity. I think that's it's a really important part of getting us out of the pandemic globally. So as we need as many people to be vaccinated or protected from the infection in order to reduce the global burden of 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 the uh, virus and of the pandemic. And I think we can talk, we could talk if we want about kind of global inequity and vaccine access. And it's something that I'm quite upset and quite vocal on because I think it's something that's very important. But I think we need to understand that we live in almost a privileged position where actually everybody in the community in this country above the age of 18 will be offered a vaccine. In other areas of the world that will not be the case at least not initially and i think we need to understand that actually that's a privilege absolutely yeah you you know we talked to a bit about what well, we heard a lot about uh herd immunity at the start of the pandemic for perhaps the wrong reasons um why don't we double click on what herd immunity actually is and whether that is a viable option for um the vaccine strategy globally locally i.e in the uk um, or whether we there are just too many unknowns about it. I think it's a really interesting topic because um, there are ongoing arguments as to how many people, what percentage of the community you would need to vaccinate in order to achieve community or herd immunity. And what this means is that um, 
within the community enough people have antibodies or are protected against the virus that it then stops the virus from being able to spread because when it does try to spread it there isn't anybody who's susceptible to it and so um I think the number quoted in the moment is something like 70 to 80 percent of people would need to be vaccinated or um immune to COVID in order for us to have community and immunity um in regards and there was at the start of the pandemic obviously there was some talk about whether or not this could be achieved through just letting the virus rip through the um community and it was quickly noted that that was not a good idea um in terms of where we go now it's a tricky one because i mean we don't live in a closed community we live in a global community now we it, we very much i mean um i guess areas where you might say they have a bit of a closed um community are currently areas like new zealand and australia where they're really limited in the amount of people who come into their country they're ensuring people are quarantined in order to reduce the spread of of the virus in their um country having said that even with that policy they've had speak um outbreaks and so they've had um cases get into the country and they've had outbreaks in areas which have meant that they've had to lock down and so it's not a easy thing to do um and we're at a stage now where we have so much virus in the community that we would need to have more or some kind of community herd immunity in order to to really properly suppress ongoing spread yeah yeah and i think uh, there are some comparisons being made with other viruses but it's very hard to compare those because of the difference in the replication rate in the the mode of spread and a whole bunch of others so it's not as as simple as saying well with measles you just need this and so if we just achieve that and and to your point about how we live in a global community i think that's a very important point um and, and actually brings me on to the next one about mutations um and how the vaccine efforts actually um look to keep up with um the the increase in, in mutations um I, i'm losing count of the number of variations of this, of this virus you're learning your greek alphabet um, yeah i am yeah <laughs> it's being pushed so, so the first thing to say is um so we know that there has been an emergence of a number of variants of concern over the last um a gate i'd say like year to six months uh the one that is of most concern at the moment in the uk is the delta variant um i would call it the delta variant i won't call it anything else but all of these variants were renamed um, because initially they were named after the f place they were first identified. And I think that's really important to note, because just because something is first identified in an area doesn't mean it actually originated in that area. So that's something to, to bear in mind. Um, and so um, these variants were all renamed in order to make them um, less stigmatising for areas in which they may have first been identified. Uh, so the Delta variant, um, as we know, unfortunately, is more transmissible. So we've seen that it spreads more easily and we think also they may actually cause more severe disease or at least mm -hmm. in areas where it has spread um, significantly, there has been um, significantly um, severe disease. And that could be due to the demographic of people. It could be due to the other comorbidities. Um, there are a lot of kind of Things are a bit unknown when it comes to um, exactly whether or not um, a variant is more um, severe. But 
oh, definitely, we can see when a variant is more transmissible, which it is. Um, and what we've seen is that um, the vaccines were obviously initially developed kind of at, towards the start of uh, the pandemic. So they were developed against the original strain of or variant of, of the virus. And what we've seen in observational studies mainly is that there is a reduction in the efficacy of um, the vaccines in relation to the newer variants. Having said that, what's good news is that actually the efficacy against severe disease and hospitalisation and death, which is the thing we things we most want to avoid, have held up. So we still have very good um, protection against severe disease, hospitalisation and death with the vaccines we currently have which is great news um what they found was that so we know that at the very start of the rollout in the uk we increased the gap um within which vaccines were given and this was because we were at the um we were essentially in the middle of um i guess we call it the second wave um and we we had such a high increase in cases what the government very quickly realised is that they needed to get as many people vaccinated as possible, whether it be with just one dose, um, in order to try and get that under control. So alongside lockdown, they decided that they were going to roll out the vaccines to as many vulnerable people as possible. And they were also going to prolong the the dosing interval between the vaccines. Now, this was actually based on data that were available from trials, specifically the Oxford trial, actually, because within the Oxford trial, there were people who had a longer gap in terms of vaccination. And what we know from that trial, but also from other vaccines, is actually when you prolong the gap between a vaccination, it actually can be quite beneficial because what it does is it prolongs the amount of immunity and you have and it could also boost it um higher than it would do if you have a shorter gap um so that was one of the things they noted however what they've seen with these new variants is that because there is less protection with just the first dose they've had to shorten again the, the interval between the doses and so now um everybody who's offered a vaccine will be offered their second dose within eight weeks and that again has been shown to be effective against the current variants Having said that, we know that the virus will not stand still. It's not. It's it. It's here to survive, guys. It's it. Viruses are so clever, um, and essentially, it will continue to mutate, especially if there's a lot of virus in the community. So, um, one of the good things about the type of technology these vaccines are made with, i.e., the messenger RNA vaccines, the viral vector vaccines, is that they're essentially like. Um, they're like a template in which you can t slot in new sequences. So uh, with the messenger RNA uh, vac uh, vaccine, you can just use a slightly changed genetic code within the same uh, vaccine envelope. And that can be tweaked um, in response to the new variants. And that's actually what's happened. So Moderna and Pfizer, I think also um, also um, Oxford, have already developed newer vaccines that are more suitable to the current variants that are currently circulating within the community. And they've already started kind of booster trials to see whether or not 
they make a difference and that there is a possibility that a lot of people come the autumn time will be offered a booster vaccine in order to give them greater protection but also to increase their immunity that's yeah i mean that, that that's pretty much answered my question about how vaccine development is set to keep up with future mutations do, do you think we're going to need to have boosters well i know this is a very hard question to answer but you know boosters once a year or uh biannually like what, what's your opinion on that so i guess the um best example of a vaccine that you have to have quite regularly or you have to have boosters or new vaccines for is a flu vaccine right so um those of us who work within the nhs um in general practice um etc we know that every year there's a different flu vaccine that's given and that's based on the current um circulating strain of the virus and often we get that information from what's happened in the southern hemisphere before we've had to vaccinate in in the northern hemisphere and that's the way it works so i think more than likely there will be um the need for more boosters, mainly in relation to uh, the variants of concern and new variants of concern that may pop up over the years. Um, I mean, the reality at the moment is, unfortunately, none of us really know exactly how long natural immunity or vaccine-related immunity lasts. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a true thing. And people are always like, oh, there are so many unknowns. How can you be sure that these vaccines work? And I'm like, they are literally one of the best defences we have against this disease. We need to get as many people vaccine, vaccinated as possible um, because um, I think a lot of people are almost trying to throw the baby out with the bath water because they're like, well, it doesn't do everything it needs to do, so therefore why should I get it? I'm like, but why would you not get it if it gives you like 50, 75 of the protection that you need? Like, I, I don't understand. It doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me. Um something is better than nothing and this is definitely more than something it's it's actually amazing what these vaccines can do for us and it's amazing the way in which they've managed to um essentially attenuate or uh, not attenuate what's the word um they've reduced the number of patients we've seen going into hospital so we know if we look at the curve of the virus at the moment that we are or we were on an upward trajectory it's kind of dipped down recently but um i'm not convinced they will continue to dip um but what we've seen is despite this massive increase in, in in virus and infections within the community we haven't seen that translated yet into um hospital admissions and that's because vaccines are working and that's that's yeah. just uh, the long and short of it. it it really is amazing to see and we're so grateful for it yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you kind of brought up that point because I think that feeds into a lot of people's hesitancy about the vaccine and that it doesn't do everything. It's not all singing, all dancing. If you took that approach to everything, you wouldn't exercise, you wouldn't eat well, you wouldn't take your statin because it doesn't fix everything. I don't think you'd you know, even leave the house. Everything. Would you leave the house? I don't know. <laughs> i don't know like <laughs> it's all about those marginal gains and actually the vaccine is beyond marginal it's it's massive and that's why you know i've had my vaccine as soon as it was offered to me as a healthcare worker which was right at the front of the queue uh which is great for me and and exactly. colleagues and i advise it to um my parents and family members and anyone listening actually so um this has been tremendous thank you so much dr sarah um i uh 
I look forward to connecting in real life at some point in the future. Uh, that would be lovely. <laughs> but, uh, but no, this is this is really insightful, and I, and I think you know it's it's lovely to hear another medic take an empathic approach to uh, people's concerns. And clearly, you've had experience from talking to people within different communities and really reflecting what their concerns are with adequate responses. So, you know, to, to share that with the audience is, is brilliant. So, I, I really appreciate your time today. No problem. I hope you've enjoyed this special bonus episode of The Doctor's Kitchen brought to you in partnership with the Mayor of London. COVID is still a serious disease that can lead to deaths and potentially long-lasting effects such as long COVID. So please consider getting the vaccine as the best way to immediately protect yourself and your family and friends from COVID-19 and reduce the chances of any new variants that can emerge from uncontrolled spiraling cases. To get your vaccine, just search, book your vaccine or visit your local walk-in centre, which can be found on the NHS website. I will see you here next time.